And also that, again, it's really not so much about us as people, like dying. It's more about what is happening around us that we want to eliminate. We want those things to die. Hey, what's up? This is Corey Dion Lewis, clinical health coach and host of the Healthy Project podcast. Now, the research shows that social determinants can have a greater impact on your health more than healthcare or lifestyle choices. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss how to improve health and reduce health inequity by speaking to healthcare professionals, thought leaders, and entrepreneurs. Now, if you're enjoying the podcast, give it a review. Or you can also make a donation to The Healthy Project using the link in the description. It takes 30 seconds and it's super easy. Hey, thank you so much for listening. Now let's get started. Hello, everybody. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Project Podcast. I am your host, Corey Dion Lewis. Great guest with me today. I have, she's the founder of Suicide Prevention and Suicide Awareness and social justice education company, Astoya Aki. I have Isabel Garcia with me today to talk about this really important topic um, that I know, Isabel, you're having a lot of conversations about, but I feel like it's not a lot of the conversations within the community about. So um, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Yes. You know, so before we get into the uh, topic at hand, can you tell the people a little bit about yourself and what gets you up in the morning? Yes. So as you said, my name is Isabel Garcia. I use her pronouns. And my work is basically about spreading awareness about how social, cultural, and structural factors influence mental health in suicide, how they create conditions for mental health issues and suicide to to happen, specifically within the Latina and Black community. And a part of that mission or goal is my lived experience within the mental health and psychiatric system. So I will say that's that that's part of or the main reason why I I do this work. It's my story. So I am an immigrant from the Dominican Republic. I moved to the U.S. 15 years ago. Um, I didn't know English. I was a high school dropout. And the entire point of moving to the United States was, well, over there you're going to get the education that you need to get to be successful. And you are going to get better treatment. You're going to get mental health treatment. And that didn't happen. (laughs) The education piece happened, but the mental health treatment piece didn't go according to plan because two weeks after I moved to Springfield, Massachusetts, I was already hospitalized in a psychiatric hospital. And from there, a journey, I call it my psychiatric journey, started. And that's when I realized that people like me, suicidal people, are treated horrendously. Uh, There's a lot of discrimination and prejudice against us um, and a lot of fear 
Uh, so I have been in solitary confinement. I have been physically restrained. I have dealt with cops just because I said that I wanted to die uh, as a teenager. So yeah, that's part of my story and what gets me up in the morning, though thinking about the injustices that I went through and how I don't want that to happen to anyone, but especially people like me, mm-hmm. people with my my identities. Right. I, I used to appreciate that story so much because there are, are a lot of people that feel the way you feel or felt the way you have felt. And there's that fear of even telling someone because, like you said, of how they're going to be treated or how they're going to be spoken to. And unfortunately, sometimes, and and correct me if I'm wrong, Mm -hmm. but it feels like when you express how you're feeling, hey, I'm not, I am feeling suicidal. It's immediately locked down. And that may not be what you need in the moment. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So there is... One of the things that I learned throughout my journey in the system uh, was that, oh, like a lot of therapists, social workers, providers in general are kind of trained to believe that coercion and violence are the appropriate measures to help someone (laughs) who wants to die, which is ironic to me because how can that help somebody? But there is something called paternalism where is where the so-called professional believes that they know better than the person they're helping. So they might assume, well, one, I know better. I have all this knowledge about psychology or whatever. And so I'm going to assume what you need. And what you need right now is to be contained because you are a danger to yourself. And that is not, for most part, I will say 99% all the time, that is not true. Actually, Suicide is not even about physical death. And I know that sounds funny because it's like, well, isn't suicide about physical death, intentional physical death? But again, 99% of the time, people are not really talking about physically dying. They're talking about situations, experiences, environment, spaces outside themselves that need to die, right? So that's what needs to die. Not them, not us. It's just that most of us don't have the language to express that. And so what I needed at the time was curiosity. I needed providers and the in my family and the people around me to be curious and to say, actually, what do you mean when you say you want to die? Like what, what exactly mm. is that? Because what I meant was that I was stressed out. I was overwhelmed. I was just, there was too much pressure on me. Also, I was in a new country and that made it worse. I was already suicidal when I moved to the U.S. But the assimilation, the acculturation process, not knowing where I was, I didn't know anything about the United States. I, I, what, my, my, my context was the Home Alone movie and like, pop star magazines and Hollywood. If that was I your know what I was getting into. I can, <laughs> I can see why it was such a shock. Oh my God. I'm going to be like even more lost and even yeah. more frustrated. So what I needed at the time, honestly, was that curiosity. And based on my conversations with the community, most of 
what people need is that curiosity or that validation that things are hard. And also that, again, it's really not so much about us as people like dying. It's more about what is happening around us that we want to eliminate. We want those things to die. Uh, right. I don't want people to miss that. You know what you were you just talking about, because I feel, in my opinion, when someone says I want to die, general population believes they want to kill themselves and they're not even thinking about this person may be experiencing, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse. And it could be something going on in their life. And like you said, you didn't have the language. They may not know how to deal with that. So the only way to deal with that is, is by death. Mm-hmm. And I feel like, man, it's such a, it is such a hard conversation to have. And I, and I understand that. Like, I understand how it can be a conversation. And that's why I have you on the podcast, because you know how to have that conversation. <laughs> uh, but I think it's just so important that we, we look outside of what's just in front of us of the words i want to kill myself and like you say be curious well why what's going on and getting to the root of the problem exactly exactly i love how you said the root Mm -hmm. because that's where it's at and the work that i do with Stoyaki is connecting the dots between mental health suicide and social justice And part of my work is talking about how social justice is a huge part of suicidality, especially among black and brown people. And so, as we were saying, with a social justice approach, we we don't look at the suicidal thoughts as the problem. More about it's more about the situations, the environments, and the spaces driving people to consider death as an answer, as an answer, as, 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 an, as a response, as, as an option. Right. Can we talk about that a little bit? So I know you focus a lot of your work on the Latina and the Black community. Yes. So why is suicide prevention important in communities of color? So we know that suicide is actually a big issue in black and brown communities. Many people might not think so, but it is. And um, we know that suicide rates, especially now, they actually increase in 2021 after a two-year decline. There was a decline in suicide rates, but then there was this increase in 2021, especially among people of color, black and brown people, and young people. So we know that, for instance, the suicide rates in indigenous communities are high. They are pretty high when in comparison to other racial and ethnic groups. But then we also look at the Latina and the Black population, and we see that those rates are also high. And for white people, the rate actually declined. So while the suicide rates rose in 2021, for black and brown people, for white people, it, it, it went lower, it declined. We also know that youth, uh, that suicide rates for people 
age 10 to 24 increase a lot for Black people, African-American, between the 2018 and 2021. Same for uh, Latine people, indigenous people too. So now those, I'm saying that as, as of now, but be, even before, even before, years and years ago, there, there has been a, uh, suicide has been a huge issue with, we see Latina teenagers that have a high rate of suicide attempts too. Mm. And so there's, there's data also right out there that, that uh, basically says that this is a huge problem. But in my work, I don't necessarily prioritize the so-called numbers because I'm more into the stories, but the stories also, is basically the stories also confirm the numbers and vice versa. Right. So mm-hmm. when I think about my entire journey, these 15 years living in this country and all the stories that I have heard, anecdotes, all the conversations I have had throughout training, my workshops, my healing circles, through panels, all this public speaking that I do, I see it. I see it. There are many, many people who are suicidal. And suicidal doesn't always mean in crisis. Because yesterday, what, what what was it? Like a week ago, I was like, oh my God, like, I don't feel good right now. Do I want to die? Or what is it that has to die for me to feel alive? I wasn't in crisis. I was just asking questions to myself about what needs to to happen for me to to thrive and keep going. So, yeah. Right, right. What? No, I, I love that. I love that. Just asking questions. You know, when, what are some of the unique challenges that you've seen through your experience with working with people within, you know, black yeah. and brown communities? You know, what are some of those challenges that you see that people face on a daily basis? Yeah, I really appreciate that question. Uh, because part of my work is focusing on the social cultural influences of Latina Black mental health and suicidality. And I believe that there's not enough conversation about social cultural factors. For example, colorism and anti-Blackness is huge, huge in Black and brown communities in general, not just Black and Latina, but colorism. Uh, this preference for lighter skin tones, for instance, mm. uh, among uh, among our our group, our racial and ethnic group, this this uh, obsession with European standards of beauty, uh, the anti-blackness. This this again that's connected to anti-blackness, believing that. The closer you are to blackness, the uglier you are, or the less competent you are, or the the less smart you are. All these beliefs are part, are part of the culture. And they, a lot of times when, especially Jews, they might go to therapy and they might be told, well, you just have low self-esteem. Or... Can we call that colorism? 
Can we call that anti-blackness? Can we call that the root, the actual problem, as you mentioned, the root, the root of the problem? Is a loss of esteem or is a colorism? That was part of my journey too. All the issues, social cultural issues that I wanted dead, <laughs> that's what the things that I wanted to die, never come up, never came up in therapy. Never, right? Another issue which can be good and bad, this is this can be considered both a protective and risk factor, is familism. And familism is huge in, in Latina families and it definitely affects their mental, uh, our mental health. Uh, and familism is about this <laughs> obligation and loyalty to family uh, where there's a lot of collectivism, but collectivism to a point where it can be hurtful because then let's say our needs we might forget about them and just focus on the other person's need, especially the parents or the grandparents. So there's a lot of there's a lot of social emotional support mm -hmm. for the people around you, your family. Can be also financial support. So there's a lot of there's a lot of emphasis on responsibility and what you can do for the family. A lot of it. Like the whole focus is family family right. is first of course there's also assimilation and acculturation um that assimilation almost killed me that was the thing that almost killed me not me assimilation uh was mm, the thing that almost killed me which mm -hmm. is when uh you know as an immigrant i came here to this country and i was like well how do i fit in because apparently my accent is too thick Apparently, I don't look like anyone. <laughs> apparently, apparently, I cannot speak Spanish in public. Apparently, like, mm. I guess, what do I do now? Right. What can I do? Yeah. What? Right. So my my thing was, well, let me let me be let me be let me be as close to whiteness as I can. So I stopped speaking Spanish. I would blow dry my hair so it would be straight. A bunch of different things. I almost changed my name from Isabel to Isabel with an I. So my name Isabel is with a, is with a Y. I almost changed it to Isabel with an I. When I became a citizen, you can do that. When you become a citizen, you can change your your name legally. Wow. I almost did that, right? Because I wanted white people to pronounce my my name. Right. Uh, because they always mess most of the time they messed it up, right? But right. that's part of assimilation, uh, fully adopting the the dominating culture, the new right. culture. Uh, Marianismo and machismo is definitely, oh my gosh, definitely an influence for the mental health of, especially Latine, but like diaspora, the diaspora, uh, where you see gender roles are very, are a very strong component. Of, of the culture where you have the man is supposed to do this. It's supposed to be the one in control, the one getting the money, very stereotypical. And women are supposed to be in the home and doing the cooking. Again, very stereotypical. But Marianismo is often not talked about, not as much as machismo, but they both come together. Marianismo are basically the standards for women. 
Like it, it comes from mm, this okay. concept of the Virgin Mary. That's why it's, it's called Marianismo. Maria, Virgin Mary. Oh, okay. Got it. Yeah. That, that's so interesting. Yeah. And it's huge. Mm-hmm. It's huge. And you know what? That leads into my, that's a great lead into my next question. And that is the, the strong influence of cultural belief. And I know that in the black community, it's, you're not, ain't nothing wrong with you. You're just hungry. Ain't nothing wrong with you. You haven't prayed hard enough. You know, there, there's all those things of, it's not your mental health. It is something else. And we don't talk about mental health because of what, whatever reasons that were, you know, past traumas of people in, in African-American communities and cultures. But what does that look like, that cultural belief and, um, and attitudes that pr- prevent people from seeking the help that they need? And what can people do? Like, how, how, how does that work within what you do? Yeah. Part of what can become a barrier to talk, to talking about mental health openly um, is what I just talked about, familism and definitely Marianismo and machismo and religion. I forgot to mention religion. But those three are the ones that I see the most. The, the the elements that give that that create those the most barriers for our people to talk about mental health, especially with parents with uh, older generations. So with familism, there's a lot of secrecy, a lot of do not bring shame to the family. You don't have yeah. to talk about this with anybody else. So it's often a barrier for therapy for 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 especially youth who wanna explore therapy as an option there might be a lot of resistance from parents there might be I'm, i don't like to generalize and right. culture, but there might be a, a this thing about why why are you talking about our problems to a stranger like we are family mm-hmm. we you, you should come to us you should always come to us but then when they, they right, but then maybe the, let's say the Jews come to, they come to the parents and then there's not the validation that they're seeking. Right. So it's like, okay. So uh, with Marianismo and machismo, so we know with machismo, there's, there's definitely a lot of pressure on men. There's a lot of pressure on, on men and, and this idea that you can, you cannot talk about your feelings. You cannot cry, even like just crying. The action of crying with with women, there might be a little bit more uh, opportunity to show emotions, quote unquote. But still, there there's still pretty much overall this idea that you shouldn't talk about that. Now, I will say one thing that I do offer as a reframe is that yes we as a culture might have these barriers to talking about mental health but i do believe we do talk about mental health a little bit just but just in a different way so many times uh we talk about mental health from the physical point of view so uh someone might say especially in, in Spanish uh, for Latines uh, who speak Spanish. 
ataque de nervios. Eh, tengo un ataque de nervios, which means I'm having a nerve attack. Which, from the, if you use the psychology, whatever, language, it might be panic attack. But they're saying nerve attack. Okay? And so, a lot of times, I might be met with, oh, take drink this tea, drink rosemary tea. Because those are our remedies. And that's what we have been used to. Okay, so you are... Your nervous system is acting up. You drink this tea. Problem mm. solved. <laughs> Obviously, there's more. There's right. more to it. There's the root. The root is not going to disappear with a tea. But what I'm trying to say is that there are, there are definitely conversations about mental health. It's just not necessarily the way that it is promoted in social media, like with this very specific language, very specific, like, Uh, depression, right? I mean, my mom might not talk about depression, but she might be like, wow, I have this huge headache and like, I don't feel like getting up. Right. right? Like, there's There has to be some quote-unquote translation, not necessarily of languages, but of, of like uh, our vocabulary when it comes to mental health, because it might not be the same. And I think that's fine. It's just how do we, how do we, um, find a common ground. Like, I call it depression. What do you call it? I call it anxiety. What do you call it? Okay, so maybe we're talking about the same thing, right? right. So that's how the way I see it. Right. We can still have the conversation, but I have to meet you where you're at and speak your language so we can, because I feel like for, for, a, lot of, for a lot of people, When you're talking about, hey, my, my nerves are bad or, you know, have this tea, that's very surface. It's like it's, it's a very surface thing. It's still, but it's a step in the right direction. Like, okay, we're doing something. Right. So but how do you make that next step to continue that conversation to where it doesn't feel like, oh, no, I, I don't want to talk about this. Nope, nope, nope. We're not doing that. You know what I mean? How can we make that next step and having a different having a different conversation within the conversation. <laughs> right. Right. And yeah. And I totally, I totally, I totally get what you're saying. Yeah. is because it's really, it's really about, I call this holding multiple truths. That's how I call it. Because you have your truth. I have my truth. Can we meet in the middle? Is mm -hmm. there a common understanding of something? I don't believe in this idea of changing people's minds. I, that's too much pressure. That's a lot. That's a right. lot. Change someone's upbringing, like their entire oh my God. socialization. I'm not, I'm not going to change my mom's socialization. My yeah. mom is almost 70. We ain't got time for that. Like, listen, <laughs> what we can do is to clarify. Clarify what is it that we're talking about here. I, I really think it's about clarification. So this is what I do. Especially if when you're having a conversation about mental health and someone you're, and someone is like, yeah, well, that doesn't exist or whatever. Or maybe you're being dramatic or you have a house and a bed. I don't know why you're complaining. Blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> usually when people talk about mental health, whatever it is, They're providing a solution. We might not agree with that solution, but they're providing a solution. My mom, when my mom says, here's the tea, 
she's providing a solution for me that is not a solution right right that's not a solution to me this whole idea of what well, you already have a bed and a house well that's not enough for me maybe that's enough for you okay so let's talk about let's talk about exactly what is the problem solution that the person is offering so we have to we have to grab that from the conversation. What exactly are we talking about here? Then the other thing we have to do is, okay, what information is missing from this person's perspective and how do we add the information? Mm-hmm. So it's not about, you are wrong, I have to change your mind. It's about there is information missing here and I want to add to your worldview. I want to add information that you might not have. And so that's how I introduce it. So when my mom says, well, let's say someone says depression doesn't exist. I'm like, hmm, well, I want to I wanna add something to that. Can I do that? And I ask for consent. See it differently. I want to add to that. I want to add to it. Right. Uh, so it, again, not about fighting or anything. Just I just yeah. want to add information that I I have. Like it seems it. so non-confrontational, and you can you can have a a very fruitful conversation about this topic. And so another piece of this is, so for me, when I think about depression, I think hmm, about right, not sleeping a lot, nor feel, not feeling like taking a shower, feeling this and that. How would you call that? I'm wondering, how would you call it? It's about curiosity. It's about translation. It's right. Like, yeah. So, it's also how we get into the combo, like our our minds are getting into the combo. Because if we're going in, you're wrong and I'm right, then yeah, you know that's yeah. Wrong. It just shuts it shuts it down. It shuts it, it shuts it down. I yeah, like and I see that a lot with youth and the older generation, with Gen Z, mm. millennials, and then uh, how do we call it, baby boomers or whatever. Like I see that intergenerational tension. Mm. And so part of my work is also right. talking about this, how to embra- embrace that, that tension in, in these conversations. But basically, once you figure out what is the solution or problem that this person is putting in this space and then what information you want to add, then you go to the last step, which is basically looking at both things. So... Like, for instance, how can we honor the, the fact that you think what I call depression doesn't exist and me believing that it does? Like, how can we, how can then we work together then? Right. Right? Like, how, how, how can we coexist knowing that you have this truth and I have this truth? So, again, it's more about opening the door. It's not about becoming a wall. We want to become mirrors, not no walls. We want to learn mm, to reflect like each other. Reflect I like that. each other. Yeah. 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 So for, for those people that aren't 
shy about talking about how they feel, right? You know, in but how can is there a right or wrong way with having a conversation about suicidal thoughts or talking to someone who may be expressing that they're having suicidal thoughts? Is there a right or wrong way? Yeah, so I will say I wouldn't. You know what's interesting? I love this question too, because I wouldn't say that there is a right way. I definitely say I definitely think that there are things that are being taught in some trainings that are like no, like I wouldn't have that, or because I don't find them culturally relevant or whatever. Uh, but I also wouldn't say that the approach I use, which is peer support. That's the approach that I use to talk about suicide. I wouldn't say it's perfect, but I like it. It has worked for me. It has worked for the the people I support. And so having said that, there are things that we can definitely say that can interrupt the suicide. And one thing that I wanna I want to say before I go into, into what that is or how that looks like is. You don't have to be a therapist to help interrupt a suicide. You don't have to. You don't have to be a so-called quote-unquote professional. Most most of professionals don't even know how to talk about suicide in the first place. Because believe it or not, suicide prevention or whatever we want to call it is not in a lot of college curriculums for mm. for mental health counselors and social workers and just overall it's actually not a popular subject in college curriculums it's very rare to see suicide in a college curriculum it exists there are colleges who do have it but mm. it's very rare okay so if you think that well a professional is better equipped no no not really they might take right. trainings in their workplace, but those trainings are also often, again, not culturally relevant, or they promote some form of coercion, uh, control, or what I call white supremacy culture, which is another, oh God, that's another (laughs) entire different topic or monster. Mm, That's part two. (laughs) Yes. So, okay. So having said all of this, there are ways, one, that you can ask uh, the question. The, the, this this very uh, this this taboo question of are you suicidal? Because many people are not ready to hear the answer. If it's yes, they're not ready, uh, but they want to ask it anyway. So I will say, if you ask a question like that, you have to do some internal work first. You might want to take a, a few deep breaths. You might want to remind yourself that this ninety nine percent of the time is not about the person; it's about something else outside of themselves that is happening to them that is causing this 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 feeling of despair and pain um i do not ask people are you suicidal i don't like that question because suicidal means many things so i'm not really asking i don't think i'm asking a direct question so what i ask is how does being alive feel like right now how does being alive feel like right now? How does being alive feel like right now? That's it. And that can go in many different directions. Right. And that is the point. <laughs> the point is right. that they actually are like, wait a second, alive? 
Because are you suicidal is yes or no, basically. That's one. Two, I honestly, how does that open up the conversation? Because usually when you ask someone, are you suicidal? And they say yes. The next question is, do you have a plan? And that is not really where the conversation, in my opinion, needs to go. I don't think it has to, uh, it can go there, but it can, we can ask a different question for that. Many times where people talk about suicide, it becomes an interrogation because right. we are seen as criminals, like we're committing some form of crime. And we suddenly, suddenly a lot of providers and people, family, friends, get into this uh, interrogation type of mindset where it's like, are you suicidal? Yes. Do you have a plan? Yes or no? Like, right. wait, this is... Having a plan, all of that stuff is way, is is very complex. So one uh, question that I ask or a statement is, I would like to hear the story of how you came to see suicide as an option. I want to, I want to hear that story. I want to hear that journey. You or, know why I feel like that's so powerful, Isabel, is... No. That may be the first time someone, when they're feeling that way, that they're allowed to even tell their story. Exactly. Like, they're like, man, no one's probably listened to them because their parents or their their families tell them they, they ain't nothing wrong with them. Or <laughs> they don't know who they can go to. They, they have all, man, that is such a powerful yeah. question. Yeah, yeah. Also, it might be that... This person have have they have thought about dying before. So how long has been thinking about suicide? A response for you. Another favorite question of mine is, which I have talked about already, is what situations happening outside yourself give power to your suicidal thoughts? Because there's also a power dy dynamic going on, uh, an existential power dynamic where it's like. There are things, situations, environments, spaces that either make our suicidal thoughts empower or powerless. So what can what what can empower what is empowering those suicidal thoughts or what can make them powerless? Because there's this idea we have to take your suicidal thoughts away. Under and oh come on. Like are you really going to dismantle colorism? <laughs> right. entire, are you going to dismantle racism right now? Because that's, those are often, again, those social, cultural, structural factors are often the root causes of suicidality and mental health in black and brown communities. So are you going to dismantle all of that? I don't, listen, I'm realistic. I'm like, what can make them a little bit powerless? Like what, mm. what is out there? Can we think about that? Another question that I like to ask, but this is more for providers, to be honest, this question is, when you think about suicide, what do you see or what do you imagine? Um, instead of asking people, do you have a plan? Are you going to do it? When are you going to do it? What, what, when you think about suicide, what do, you, what do you think about? What do you imagine? Just, just curious. Uh, when I think about suicide, I think about my funeral. I see myself in the casket. 
I see the people in the funeral. But guess what? Thinking about my funeral is actually a protective factor against suicide for me because after I see myself in the casket, <laughs> right, which is very can be very scary, I also think about people reading their eulogies about me and saying how awesome I was and mm. how funny I was and how intelligent I was. And that reminds me, wow, I actually do have people that care about me. I forgot. So this is why we cannot make assumptions also about the so-called plans or whatever, because for all you know, it can have a protective element to it. So yes, thinking about my funeral and my actual suicide actually does help me prevent suicide. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? It's super interesting, but it makes sense though. Like to me, you know, it makes sense as you're, thinking about that and you're thinking about the I know this person is going to tell that story about me or you know what whatever the case may be it can be like oh wow there are people that actually care about me and care about my well-being and Ooh. I don't want to die yeah so there's a there can be a twist to all of these so-called suicidal thoughts but we have to be creative and we have to be open about it so if someone were to say yeah I think about my funeral I see myself in the casket a provider, family, or friend can be like, how about the eulogies? I wonder what they say. Have you thought about the eulogies? You know, often, sometimes people talk, they say very nice things. I wonder if you have thought about that part. Right? We can we can be creative about, about these things. Another thing is a suicide note. So I have a suicide note on my nightstand. A lot of people will look at that and be like, holy crap, we need to hospitalize you. Little do they know, it also prevents uh, my suicide. Because when I look at my suicide note on the nightstand, it gives me control. Because I'm like, you know what? I can be out at any moment. And sometimes that's my only source of power and control over my life. So when I don't feel in control in areas of my life where I'm like, ah. There's nothing I can do. I look at a suicide note and I remind myself, actually, power. I can live at mm. any time. Guess what? It prevents my suicide because it gives me this, this idea of having an option. So many people don't want to go there because it's scary. I get it. I get it. It's scary knowing that Isabel thinks it's an option. But just the fact <laughs> that I think it's an option gives me that control I need to keep going. So again, well, how do we know that? We know that because of conversation, because we are opening this dialogue and this door to having uh, these scary conversations. Another one, another question that I really like is um, how, oh, so once you ask, when you think about suicide, what do you see or what do you imagine? It might be that this person says, Right. Like I already mentioned the funeral. Right. Uh, it might be that the person says, well, I see, I see this. I see X, using X, Y, and C to die. I, I see myself using a method. Imagine whatever method you can you know, think of. Right. So how does that image or dream or nightmare, however you're calling it, distance you from wanting to stay alive 
And so also looking at this as distancing, like as, as a movement, that helps me a lot. Again, it's not this binary of, do you want to die or not? Right, <laughs> like, right. Okay, so let's look at this. If we have a line right here, all those thinking about X, Y, and C move, uh, distance you, distances you from wanting to stay alive. Where would you be? Woo! This is mm. so also playing with those kind of metaphors. Also, it can be how do these images about suicide move you closer to wanting to stay alive, right? In my case, the funeral is like, yeah, the eulogies actually are are helpful to think about. Um, I could keep going forever. Listen, I have, I have, this is what I train about. I have a, I have a seven hour and a half training just about this stuff. I wow. could do all this forever. But yes, these are a couple of things that 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 you can ask. You know, one. Uh, I guess the last thing I will say, a, a very powerful question is, what problems will suicide solve for you? Because mm-hmm. many times, many times I forget that there are other options, that there are other form of responses that I can try. Like, I just forget. I get very, like, tunnel vision about, no, 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 this is the only way. I forget, oh, wait a minute. Also, if these are the problems that I want to make disappear, would I still want to die if those problems could be solved? And one hundred percent of the time is no. <laughs> like I don't want. I don't really want to physically die. It's really I want. I want racism to disappear. Obviously, I want oppression to disappear. Obviously. Um. So, ob- and obviously, there's no like. Oh my god, we're gonna solve oppression, but are uh, like at once. But like, what are are small things that we can do together or steps to take that can can give us some hope, something, something to look forward to at least. Um, I'm going to shut up now. No, so good. That's, that's so good. And and those are some of the things that I wanted the audience to know, because regardless of if we shove it under the rug or we pretend it's not there, these things are happening around us constantly. And there are people in our lives, whether it be a family member or a friend, a coworker, that may be experiencing some of these things. And if we don't have some of the words and the knowledge that you can bring to that you're bringing to the table in our tool belt, we can't we can't help those people that we love. So no, I appreciate everything that you just said, and such a valuable 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 insight and conversation. Isabel, again, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciated it. For anybody that wants to learn more about you, about what you do with at Astoyo Aki, Mm -hmm. where can they find you and where can they reach you? Yes. Uh, If you want to know more about my training, workshops, healing circles, my services, uh, you can go to estoy-aki.org. Uh, there you will find all, all the information. And if you want to follow me on social media, then you can just go to Estoyaki LLC. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, TikTok. 
just write Stoy Aki LLC, <laughs> it should show up. I'm trying to do more educational stuff through social media as an extension of my workshops, trainings, and circles. So, yeah, I I, I recommend following me there, too. Yes, um, I'll make yeah. sure I have all those uh, links in the description of this episode. So it'll make it easy for people to get there as well. Perfect. Yes, I yes. will appreciate that. <laughs> Isabel, thank you so much for the time. It was well worth the wait in the back and forth. I didn't think it was going to happen, but it happened. I know. I know. Thank you so much again. And um, everybody, thank you for listening to the Healthy Projects podcast. I'll holler at you next time.